Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Lord Jesus, keep our minds fixed on your precious word and our thoughts on your glorious victory over death so that we may know the joy of your resurrection and share the pleasure of the saints at your right hand, where you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Psalm 16, which is a miktam by David. Guard me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The holy ones who are in the land are glorious. All my delight is in them. Those who chase after another God will increase their sorrows. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. I will not take up their names on my lips. Lord, you are the cup that has been given to me. You have secured an allotment for me. The property lines chosen for me fall in pleasant places. Yes, a delightful inheritance is mine. I will bless the Lord who guides me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Even my flesh will dwell securely because you will not abandon my life to the grave. You will not let your favored one see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, fullness of joy in your presence, pleasures at your right hand forever. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, David wrote this psalm nearly a thousand years before Christ was born. And most of this psalm you could see working, applying in David's life. And in fact, you can even see most of this psalm applying in your own life. But we know David cannot be talking about himself in this psalm when we hit verse 10. Because you will not abandon my life to the grave. You will not let your favored ones see decay. Maybe in modern English we'd say, you're not going to let my body rot in the grave. Well, David's been dead for nearly 3,000 years. I guarantee you his body is decomposed. In fact, in history, there's only been three people whose body haven't composed. Enoch, the Genesis, who was spared death. Elijah, who was spared death. Oh, yes. And our Lord, who was not spared death, but he was in the grave. Good Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. So to Jewish reckoning, three days. By Roman thinking, a day and a half. His body did not decay before he rose. Thomas should have found comfort from this psalm because the people at that time had memorized the psalms. All 150 of them, they were their psalm book and they carried it around in their heart. And so Thomas should have found comfort in this as the other apostles, but again, they had missed it. And so we're thankful God had assured us many years, a thousand years before Christ's birth, that Christ was not going to rot in the grave. And this was used on the first Pentecost sermon uh, that the Apostle Peter you quotes this psalm as he addresses the crowd, which we'll go through that text on Pentecost Sunday in five more weeks. But also in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul quotes this line of this psalm when he's in Poseidon Antioch preaching to the Jews. So it's very clear by the New Testament that this psalm is about Jesus and it's comfort for you and I because it was assurance that Jesus would rise. So today we're going to apply this psalm to ourselves and see by Christ's death and resurrection, you have inherited eternal life. And so our psalm begins, uh, Jesus says, watch over me, God, because I take refuge in you. Now to take refuge is to find shelter and comfort. Is this where you and I take refuge? Do we take refuge more so in our bank accounts, in the roof over our head, 
in the fact that when the going gets tough, the tough get going so we can work harder and make more money or we can solve our problems. Don't we tend to see it as being a sissy here in the West if you, if you run immediately to the Lord? But this, our true God, man, did perfectly. You and I, because we have faith and we're connected to Christ, we do find refuge in God. But we don't do it perfectly. So we're thankful that God became a man and he perfectly always took refuge in God. So he says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. And the Hebrew literally says, my good is not over you. In English, we would say, I have no greater good than you. And there's quite a confession here. He recognizes that, you know, like a river flowing from the mountain peak of Wyoming as the snow belts, that God is the source of all good and there's no good equal to or above God. He is the source. Now, you and I, again, in our sinful nature, we can, we can think of something else as the source of our good. Love from a spouse, maybe winning the lottery. There's many things, and, and any time we let a sin in our heart impact our relationship with God, we're given it equal status. If we embrace a sin so much that we drive the Holy Spirit out of our hearts, we're holding that sin above God. But here again, we see our Savior finds perfect refuge in God, sees him perfectly all the time as the source of his good and holds nothing good above him. And because we're connected to Christ, our new man does this perfectly, but our old man, he wants us to forget that. He wants, he wants to let it slip in. So here, in all this, we see Christ finding, keeping the first commandment. You shall have no other gods, letting nothing else have a foothold in his heart equal to God. And he also keeping, is keeping the second commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain because he recognizes God's name is not emptiness. God is the source of all of his good. So you're credited for that. Oh yes, and he's keeping the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day because it's there that we find God wants us to find rest in his word. And so in all this, Christ was our substitute. He did this perfectly. But when you have faith that he died and rose again for you, that you've been credited with his perfect obedience, the Holy Spirit in your heart has united you to Christ. And so you see, Christ had no greater good than God. So now you can take refuge in Christ, who is the God-man. And that word he begins with when he says, because I take refuge in you. In the Hebrew, it has kind of a word picture, like a baby chick when the, when the hawk comes flying over, running underneath the protecting arm of the uh, hen. But brothers and sisters in Christ, even a hen can be pecked to death by an eagle or a predator. Jesus is not just a man as our substitute. He is God. And so he's ruling over all creation for you so that truly even the things that are rotten and miserable, at least your sinful nature wants you to think that in this life, Jesus would not let you suffer those unless he had a plan. So he, even those things are actually good for your eternal well-being. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, have we trials and temptations? As the hymn says, Take them to the Lord in prayer because Christ had no greater good than God. You can find refuge in Jesus Christ, your Savior. Now he gets specifically to you. Verse three, in regards to the saints who are on the earth, they indeed are the majestic ones. All my delight is in them. The Hebrew word that I translate as saints also as holy ones. It, it, it literally means to be set apart for God's purposes. You and I were on the road to perdition whether we were uh, still uh, uh, babies born to Christians who brought us to the baptismal font or whether we came later in adult life. We were on the road to perdition. But God sent His Holy Spirit working through that message that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that all our sins are forgiven, that we're united to Him and have eternal life. And He set you apart for His purposes. 
That new man in you is God's glory. He is glo- because he's connected to Christ. And that new man in you is majestic, therefore. And he's set apart then to share the glory of God in this world and to bask in the glory of God in the life to come. And so Jesus says, all my delight is in them. So Jesus right here is promising you, all my delight is in you. This is why he lived. This is why he came to the cross. This is why he exited the tomb. To set you apart, to make you holy, to give you his majesty. That is your new man. And then to give you eternal life. To set you apart that you can share that and bask in it. His delight is completely in you. But now we get a contrast with those who can't say that. Those who've rejected him. He says, time and time again their miseries increase for those who exchange for another God. And it's kind of difficult Hebrew here. The only other time the Hebrew word that I translate as exchange comes in is when a dowry is given for a bride. I think that David, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used this word on purpose. Because in Scripture, God refers to your relationship with Jesus as you're the bride and Jesus is the groom. He purchased and won you with his life and death and resurrection. His righteousness is your beautiful dress that you wear, your bridal dress. But if we're going to look for another God, then like a man-hating feminist, we're going to say, no, we'll pay the dowry. Now, the dowry was paid actually to the father to keep things secure so that if, if the husband died, he would be able to provide for his daughter again if she was left with no children to provide. So that money was supposed to be put into like a savings account, if you will. But if we're turning around and we're saying, I'm going to chase after another God, then we're the woman on bended knee asking somebody else to marry us, and we're paying the dowry, and we don't have the blood money, the life of the God-man. We're putting ourselves in charge. This is breaking the first commandment. And it says our miseries will only increase. There's a neat word picture there. When we want to tell God how to be God, or if we want to chase after other gods that we have to make and serve, We're only going to make ourselves miserable. True happiness comes in understanding that we have sought refuge in God, that he is our refuge, he is our greatest good, and we're not exchanging that. So we come to his word to be edified. So it continues, I will not pour out their drink offerings from their blood. In pagan idol feasts, they would would gorge themselves on alcohol and wine, but they'd often begin, they'd kind of swirl the glass and a little drop would fall to the ground, and that drop was meant to be for the gods. They're offering to them a little bit of wine for the false gods. And Jesus refers to these as bloody sacrifices. If somebody worships somebody other than God, it impacts more than their eternal life. It often impacts those around them. One generation of unbelievers brings up another generation in unbelief. They are nothing less than eternal murder in our Savior's eyes. So he says, I'm not even going to pour out a drink offering to them. I'm not even going to give them that. And he says, I will not lift their names over my lips. Now, maybe you and I aren't, aren't tempted today to chase after false gods like Baal or Moloch or Zeus that the Greeks worshipped. But we live in a very affluent society. And, and having money and the possessions that, that comes with it, we can quickly make that our gods. We can make health our god. We can make work our god. We can make spouse our god. Oh, we're good. And, we, and our best one is to make our own selves god, wanting to tell God how to be god for us. So we're, we're happy to hear our Savior would never even lift their names on his lips. He was tempted in every way, but stood firm for you so that he could credit you with his majesty. So here we see by Christ's death and resurrection, you have inherited heaven and even here by his life. So we see Christ delighted to make you majestic. 
He has shared His glory with you and assures you that you will see that glory in all eternity. So we continue in verse 5. He says, The Lord is my assigned portion in my cup. So you assign a portion. or They used to put, uh, they, like if you had a signet ring, they'd put, if they had to choose somebody, they'd put them in a cup and kind of shake the cup up and, and throw it on the ground. And whichever ring went the furthest or the closest, that was the person chosen. There kind of seems to be chance by an unbeliever here, doesn't it? And he, and he continues that out. You are the one who keeps on securely holding my lot. Now again, a lot was kind of like dice. What he's saying here is, is you hold my destiny. It's not luck. It's not good luck or bad luck. Those are pagan concepts. Your whole entire life is, he is held secure in God's hands. And Jesus' entire life was there. There's a reason why he prays right before he gives up his spirit on the cross. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus took on human flesh. His lot in life was to be your and my savior. So he says, the property markers have fallen for my benefit. And here we have that picture in the Old Testament. By birthright, if you were the firstborn, you got a double inheritance. And after that, it was divided up among all the sons. But he says, surely a hereditary property in the pleasant places has brought pleasure over me. He's saying, yeah, I get, the, I get the place with the beautiful trees and the nice creek that cools and the refreshing water. I get the best of all. And this didn't happen by chance. But this, I said, there's a lot of this psalm David could say of himself. And David had some miseries, but God had planned for David to be king over the nation of Israel. And write many of the psalms as he did. But God also planned out your life. Right here, it's, it's not by chance that you became a believer. Before God said, let there be light, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit planned for you to hear the word, planned for you to be baptized and have the Holy Spirit sealed in your heart, planned to keep your salvation secure. This isn't luck. God has planned out and has assured you, I am keeping you safe till the day of heaven. This is the doctrine of election because Jesus had agreed before they said, let there be light to be the one who would take on human flesh and be your savior. They planned out all of your life to bring you to and keep you in salvation so you can say through Christ, you are elected to eternal life and even actually given that, the process of that election, the salvation. The psalmist continues, I keep on blessing the Lord. He counsels me. Now, when God blesses us, we receive many benefits. God doesn't receive benefits from us. He has everything. So here we'd say, I keep on praising the Lord. He counsels me. Jesus found good advice in the word of God, even though he himself is the word. He didn't use all the powers of his godhood. So as a child, he learns the word of God by going to the Old Testament version of Sunday school, if you will. And yes, we even find him seeking advice, counsel from God as he withdraws from the crowd and prays or in that dark night when he's going to be betrayed saying, Father, there's another way. Let's do this because this cup is going to hurt a lot, but not my will, but your will be done. And God sent an angel to comfort him. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus praised his heavenly Father always and always found comfort and advice from him. And in fact, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove, as his baptism, he was being given kind of a permanent counselor, if you will, until that time that he would take up all the powers of his godhood again. But he says, even at night, my innermost being instructionally reprimands me. Kind of hard to translate the Hebrew word there. It's a discipline, but it's an instructioning discipline. And... So for you and I, lots of times before we go to bed, those sins we did during the day, they hit us in a guilty conscience. And, and we're reminded to repent, to, to confess our sin to the Lord and trust it's been removed. 
Why would Jesus need instructional reprimand? Well, again, we can look at that Garden of Gethsemane where his flesh, his flesh in an unsinful way, because Jesus never sinned, is starting to say, ooh, this is going to hurt. So he says, if there's another way, let's do this. But not my will, but your will be done. And he continues, I have placed the Lord continually in front of me because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And, and Hebrew is a very picturesque language, and here we don't want to miss the picture. If I put you right in front of me, if I stand with you right in front of me, am I going to see the banners in our church? Am I going to see the windows? I'm going to see you. Jesus, true God who became true man, always kept the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit right in front of him. So this is what he always saw. And he always saw this was the means that he'd come to give you a relationship with God. It was always his goal and purpose. He did this perfectly. And so he says, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Jesus' purpose in life, the lot that fell to him, the plan of your salvation... It came and was strong. He did not shirk away from saving you. Now, because Jesus kept God in front of him continually, you now have a counselor and advisor who works through his word. It's why you've come here to worship this morning. It's why we do devotions. He sends his Holy Spirit. So you're connected to Christ and you keep God in front of you. Even though our sinful nature fights against it, no matter what happens in this life, you see God in front of you and your new man is confident. God is using this for my good. Even this is going to pass because I have eternal life in Christ. So we see Christ has kept the Lord before him so that Christ, the word, having the New Testament written and the Old Testament, is now your counselor, your advisor. Now we get to the big part of the psalm. Verse 9, 10, and 11. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory dances with joy and my flesh keeps on dwelling in security. I find amazement that, first of all, my heart is glad. He, Jesus even could be glad in the misery as he drops sweat like drops of blood off of himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. He could find joy and be glad because he knew the plan of salvation meant you would be with him in heaven. And he says, my flesh keeps on dwelling in security. Throughout his life, how many times was his flesh in mortal danger? God tells Joseph when Jesus is very young, get the baby and go to Egypt. Herod's trying to kill him, but God kept him secure. Or think about when he's in his own hometown and the people don't like that this carpenter's boy is preaching and they're going to go chuck him off a cliff and he just suddenly stops and walks through the crowd. That's the power of God. And yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we build up here to verse 10, Jesus' words on the cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He's about to separate his soul from his body, but he knows God is going to keep the Father with them both in his hands is going to keep them secure. And so he says, and my glory dances with joy in verse 9. Now, Jesus' glory is his godhood. And the glory of his godhood is his grace, is the kindness he's shown to save you and I who do not deserve it. And so in looking at that, his glory dances with joy throughout all life. The glory in him that he kept hidden from human beings is dancing with joy as he's going to give you salvation. And now we get to verse 10. Because you will not abandon my very existence to the realm of the dead, and you will not allow your favored one to see the decay of the grave. We covered this on Easter Sunday. That empty tomb, that empty cross, is God the Father giving you a receipt. Your salvation is done. Your sins are paid for in full. And as Jesus said, the last thing Jesus had to do was to die as your substitute. He separates his soul from his body and God the Father kept him secure. Would not allow the Jewish Sanhedrin. You know, they, they put a, a guard there to keep the tomb from being violated. Never dawned on them, let's just take his body away. Maybe let's chop it up and, and, and harm it. God the Father kept that thought from entering their heads. 
He kept him secure so that you could be confident that tomb was emptied. You could be confident. Yeah, Thomas did stick his hands in, in, into the nail holes. We know our Savior's risen. And so he says in verse 11, you keep on making known to me the path of life. And the Hebrew here literally is the path of lives. It looks at all the nuances of life, both your physical life and your eternal life and all the privileges that come from that. Jesus knew this and he makes you aware of it through the word. There's more to this life than just food for the belly, right? You need food for your soul. You need to, yeah, and you get to rejoice in hearing your sins are forgiven, which you desperately need. So he says, the fullness of joy in your presence, the pleasantries of being at your right hand endlessly. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father now. He's ascended, and we confess that. And that means he's in the position of authority, and he rules over all creation, eternally now in the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he rules over all creation for you, because you're connected to him. And so he wants you to be at his right hand. He gives you the power to bind and release sins. He gives you joy in his presence. In this life, your new man is connected to him. And when he returns, you will get to literally bask and see you are in the presence of God. So here we see Christ's security, that he was secure in God the Father's hands bodily and spiritually, his soul as well, because he was secure and he rose the two God the Father, united them again, he has secured you. You are secure in his flock. So as we've worked through Psalm 16, seeing the Savior's work and how that applies to you, we see by Christ's death and resurrection, you have inherited heaven. Christ had no greater good than God, so you can take refuge in him. Christ delighted to make you majestic. Through Christ, you are elect to eternal life. Christ has kept the Lord before him so that Christ is your great counselor, your advisor. And Christ's security, he kept secure in God the Father's hands, has secured you. So you're secure in Christ's hands as a member of his flock. Amen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water.